0: It's a tension between how women were raised, how women were taught, what we learned, what we leaned into growing up. And it's this idea of diet culture really, the diet industry telling us we're not good enough, but we will be if we do this diet, or if we take this pill, or if we take this supplement, or if we lose this weight. And it's that tension between that and what we feel internally of this constant cycling and getting on the next diet, and off the diet, and on the diet, and off the diet. And it's this constant tension of, living in this gray
1: i'm amy and i'm abby and as women we are constantly comparing ourselves to others but your life isn't supposed to look like hers being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose
2: we get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. Today on the podcast, we have dietitian Alyssa Miller. On Instagram, she is known as Mama and Me RD. She has a podcast called Nutrition for Littles, and she co hosts the podcast Diet Rioters, whose tagline is Drop Diets and Pick Up Your Life. I know that this is going to be such an important interview. Could we get started by you introducing yourself for our audience?
0: Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Hi everybody. My name is Alyssa Miller. I'm a registered dietitian. I'm a mama of two. And I host two podcasts. So um, I'm really passionate about helping little ones um, be raised in an environment where it's a healthy relationship to food. And I really saw this connection with picky eating being their kind of first experience to feeling pressure around food and how that kind of develops into adolescence and adulthood, where we, as we all know, are pressured around food and our body and body image and all those sorts of things. So I'm just really passionate about helping moms raise healthy, independent eaters. So I focus a lot on picky eating, but I also realized that I can't focus on picky eating without also not helping mom heal herself with her relationship to food. So that's kind of where I stand is trying to like break this cycle. And I'm really uh, passionate about that. And that's why I ended up with
1: two whole podcasts. And it really does start in childhood. And we'll be getting into all the questions about children's eating later on this episode. But we wanted to start on the adult side. So Amy and I, we are super passionate about bringing professionals on when we talk about topics like eating, because we know how important it is to spread good information and not contribute to diet culture. So can you tell us more about intuitive eating and why you suggest it to your clients and also to your followers? Oh, absolutely. One of my favorite topics is talking all about
0: intuitive eating. So I'm going to try to keep this brief because it's a really big topic. But Intuitive eating is really this idea, and it was founded by two registered dietitians. um, And there's actually a book on it that you can read more about. But intuitive eating is this idea that, you know what? We don't actually need anyone else to tell us specifically how much or what to eat. We have everything inside of us to learn how to survive in this world, how to thrive, and how to be healthy. So it's this entire idea that we are put in the driver's seat of our own health and our own body. And we're able to make decisions of what food feels good to us when and in what amounts, which I know can feel really scary and really vast and way too open for a lot of us because we're so used to the rigidity of diets, but truly it is an incredible path to health and really unique and specific to you. You know, So many of us try to follow what the person down the street is doing, or um, you know, someone who is on Instagram <laughs> tells us what to do, when in reality, they don't know us, they don't know our body. And intuitive eating is a beautiful way to connect and really attune yourself with your own bodily cues to find your unique pathway to health.
2: You know, and on that path, I think people really struggle that it is so gray. Mm -hmm. There aren't black and white rules. People feel like they're going against what they've learned, you know, and a lot of that does come from the diet industry. Women feel that without a plan, the wheels might come off. Mm -hmm. How do you start to coach people out of that mentality and try to open them up to intuitive eating?
0: Yeah. I think you just like, honestly hit the nail on the head with the struggle, right? It's a tension between how women were raised, how women were taught, what we learned, what we leaned into growing up. And it's this idea of diet culture, really the diet industry telling us we're not good enough, but we will be if we do this diet or if we take this pill, or if we take this supplement, or if we lose this weight. And it's that tension between that and what we feel internally of this constant cycling and getting on the next diet and off the diet and on the diet and off the diet. And we're so used to that black and white mentality. We're either all on or we're all off. We're either on the diet or we're off the diet. We're starting Monday or we're starting next week. And it's this constant tension of living in this gray. And that is really hard for a lot of us, myself included. I would actually put myself at the top of the list. I struggle so much with this black and white mentality, especially around exercise I was the type of person that needed to be in the gym for two hours plus to get a good workout in and feel accomplished. And even then I would still feel like, well, I could have done more. Or if I remember picking up swimming for a period of time in my life and it was so wild the thoughts that came into my head because I would be done with a swim and I would go home and be like, well, I don't feel like I got a good workout in because I didn't sweat. I'm literally in a pool. And that's how disordered my thinking was was that I didn't get a good workout in because I didn't feel sweaty. And it was, it was this whole idea of I couldn't just do a little bit. I couldn't just go for a walk. And I know so many women struggle with this and insider membership as well, struggle with this idea of all or nothing. Is it enough? And um, it's this grayness that we kind of have to settle into. And You know, there's no real one answer of how to coach people through this, but it is really helpful to help them identify the harm of the cycling and what that's actually doing to us mentally, but also physically what that's doing to our health to constantly be on and off. I think many of us can step back and think, okay, what's what's a healthier life? Is it going on and off the most recent fad diet? And when we're on, we're on and we're eating all this celery and salads and all these quote unquote healthy foods. But then when we're off, we eat everything under the sun because we know another diet's right around the corner. Is that a healthier way to live? Or is it more sustainable and healthier to be on this kind of like coast of life of saying, a salad sounds good today. Tonight, pizza sounds great. I would love to have an extra glass of wine. I would love to wake up slow and have a big brunch instead of an early morning breakfast or a smoothie. And really living our life and leaning into our health choices in the moment over time. And it becomes this really beautiful journey when we look back on our life to say, Hey, I wasn't on and off my whole life. I wasn't, you know, jumping on the thing that my, you know, coworker was doing every two seconds. I was listening to me and my body. And I made choices day-to-day, moment-by-moment, month-by-month that led to this really beautiful lifelong health. So sometimes it's really helpful to take a few steps back and help people identify the cycle that they're in. So many times, unfortunately, we fall victim to the cycle and we don't even know that we're in it. But when we can look back on our dieting history and know that, oh, I got on Weight Watchers and then I was off Weight Watchers and I tried keto and then I was off keto and you know, I've tried intermittent fasting fasting," or whatever the new diet is, or even just if you're more like me, I, I haven't been on many named diets as we call them. I've been more of a like track my food eat well, you know, take care of myself, watch what I eat kind of person, which sounds really innocent, but it can quickly lead into disordered eating. And so I think it's helpful to point people in the direction of what we call the um, diet binge cycle, where people start to diet or restrict or watch what they eat or track their food, and then they fall off and then they just binge right and what it's not necessarily like the clinical term of binge but we we all know what i say when i say binge we have a night where we just eat uncontrollably and we almost kind of scare ourselves and then we're like okay i i need to get back on a diet on monday well monday's 2 days away so In the next two days, we're gonna eat whatever we possibly can because Monday is coming and we know we're gonna be restricted again. So we eat all the food we possibly can. I've been totally one to just eat the chips in my in my pantry because I know I can't have them on Monday. So I need to just eat them to get them out of the house, right? That is so disordered thinking because actually what we're doing is we're cramming a whole bunch of these like play foods, as I call them, or you know, what a lot of people would call junk foods into a two-day span. Versus spreading them out over time when they feel good and allowing ourselves actually unconditional permission with no guilt or shame to eat these foods, which can feel really scary for people. So the first thing I think is teaching people to take a step back and identify the cycle that they're in and realize that that's actually not how they want to live their life. And when we get to the end of our life, we want to look back and see that kind of more peaceful journey to health. And the way to really start doing that is very slowly. It's with one meal at a time, one eating experience at a time, slowly building trust with ourselves. In the beginning of intuitive eating can be quite a roller coaster. (laughs) You're up, you're down, you're eating all these foods. And a lot of times we end up what I call spite eating (laughs) all these foods that diet culture for years has told us not to touch. But eventually that becomes a moment of, do I even like this food? Or was I only eating it because I couldn't? It's kind of like this wet paint analogy that I tell people when we walk past a wall that says wet paint. 90% Ninety percent of us want to touch that wall and just see. I just want to see. Is it still wet? When did they paint it? Are they lying to me? We want to touch it and find out. But if we were to walk past a wall that had no sign, none of us would touch that wall. Like it would be very rare for us to reach out and randomly touch a wall. And it's this whole idea that we're bringing our attention to it. So for me, that was you know stories of like sugared cereal. I wasn't allowed to have sugared cereal as a kid. I always, whenever I went over to friends' house who had it the next morning after a sleepover, I would eat them out of house and home of sugared cereal. I loved it so much. I was so excited. I, you know, moved out of my parents' house. I started buying sugared cereal. Come to find out, I don't like it. It makes me feel horrible all day if I start my day with sugared cereal. And so now I've come to this point of like, well, there's so many foods that I had put off limits or put in this like bad category. That I don't actually even enjoy. I was only eating it because I had slim periods of time where I could eat it in between dieting, if that makes sense. So really learning how to lean into those experiences and and be mindful with our food and tune in and ask ourselves those questions. Do we actually enjoy this? How does this actually make me feel long-term for the day, for tomorrow? How does this set me up for the next few hours of my day? Is this actually filling me up to get me to lunchtime so I'm not ravenously hungry and just want to eat the whole house when lunchtime rolls around. And it really starts small and starts with one eating experience at a time to build trust back with
1: yourself. Alyssa, you explained that answer So well. And one of the biggest reasons, one of the biggest reasons we wanted you on the podcast was because you do have the research and education to back it up. But then you also have your own personal experience. Like, you know, that chip bag and wanting to finish that chip bag, you're able to speak on that experience. And so many women, Mm -hmm. myself included have that feeling. And we know that if we finish that chip bag, oh, starting Monday, we're never going to eat those chips again. And then sure enough, three days go by, we go to the grocery store, we grab more chips, and it just starts that Mm -hmm. cycle again. Um, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but when I was younger, I suffered from orthorexia. So I had that obsession with eating healthy, and it went so far that it it became an issue. And for me, a lot of it was performance-based. So I was able to run faster. I could do more as a gymnast. The lower my weight got, honestly, the better I became as an athlete. And as a high schooler who asked for more vegetables, who loved salads, I started getting praise for how healthy I ate. I was getting praise for disordered eating because no one knew that that was the root issue. But in college, and you talked about this with that diet and then binge cycle, I started swinging the exact opposite way. And that restriction, then binge, it became a daily habit. And I gained 45 pounds over the course of my freshman year. As a dietitian, is this something that you do see often? I know we talked about that a little bit in the last answer, but it seems like most dietitians are very against these diets. And I know that our listeners would benefit from understanding this on a deeper level.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, truly... Abby, you're not alone in that experience mm. at all. And I loved how you touched on the fact that you were praised for how healthy I ate. And this is, this is one of the things that we teach, um, in the diet writers membership and in for picky eating as well Is praise can actually be another form of pressure. We don't think of it that way, but truly it does because it leads to us wanting more praise, right? And when we want more praise, we'll continue to do the action as long as the praise keeps coming. And this happens with weight loss as well, right? We see when people lose weight, They're praised for how, quote unquote, healthy they are, when in reality, everybody is so different with where their weight needs to be to be healthy and to perform. Performance is absolutely important, whether you're an athlete or not. For me, my performance is being a mom. Can I keep up with my kids? Can I wake up early? Can I not be tired all day? A lot of that is really important for our health. Um, What's really important is to know that although we have all been trained that health equals weight it really doesn't. Weight is one piece of this like one thousand piece puzzle to our health, and of course, it is something that we could look at to dictate: Hey, is there a red flag here? Is there a yellow flag here? Is there something that we need to bring our attention to? Whether it's disordered eating, a full blown eating disorder, or whether it's you know something medical that's going on. A lot of um, my, I come from a clinical background, and a lot of my cancer patients used to just be praised for their weight loss, and then they would say, "Well, I have cancer," and people's faces would just drop. You know, and it it was so hard because I remember speaking with this woman who said, Listen, I've been trying my whole life to lose these 15 pounds and and now that I have cancer and I've lost the weight it's nothing like i thought it was i i i wish i could have those 15 pounds back i wish i could trade these in and i think that's a really powerful example of how we praise weight loss when we actually don't know what's going on on the inside so um i guess to kind of come back to your example of do i see this often absolutely um what you're talking about the binge cycle uh, that we've kind of touched on is very common and in fact if you look at the research the number one predictor of weight gain is going on an intentional diet to lose weight. So when we see that, you know, it's mind boggling to me that not more practitioners are picking up on this, that we continue to push diets and try this one, not that one. And of course that one didn't work for you, but this one will, when it's actually the number one predictor in weight gain. Now all that to say, weight gain is not a bad thing. It is not inherently some of us do need to gain a little bit of weight. Some of us do uh, need to maybe uh, stay the same weight, even though we start shifting to intuitive eating. Brooke and I actually talk about this on our podcast a lot, that our intuitive eating journey specifically, we've gone through every cycle. We started with gaining weight. Then we lost weight. <laughs> Brooke has maintained her weight. like She's the same weight, thick and thin, whether she was eating a diet on a diet or whether she was intuitive eating. But inside, she feels completely different. I myself lost weight when I started in eating intuitively. And so it's really about finding that balance of where your body is healthiest and weighing those pros and cons for you. I, I love how you talked about this. You know, there There is some performance-based things that might increase or get better because you have lost weight. But when we look at the whole picture of health, what does that really feel like to be living in that body? Are we struggling? Are we waking up every single day? tracking and counting and having so much mental energy and space up about what we're eating, what our weight says, and being so performance driven that we're forgetting to live our life. And that kind of comes back to our tagline of drop diets, pick back up your life. Like Your life is not meant to be lived at a certain weight every single day of your life so that you can perform at the highest peak level. And oftentimes we might even find that we thought we were performing at a high level, but we look back and we're like, but I was miserable. <laughs> I was tired, but I was actually whittling away my health, trying to stay at that weight that maybe wasn't actually healthy for me, um, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. And it's kind of wild because I feel like Instagram is so loud with opinions. And I think that's why a lot of women get confused. So it's interesting to kind of hear your expertise and your opinion. We wanted to ask you because we try not to be absolute on our podcast. We understand there's many different versions of what life can look like. There are women out there that prefer to weigh themselves daily and to track their food. In your opinion, can this be done in a healthy way?
0: I absolutely love that you asked this question because I think it's an important one to look into deeper. And I think truly the answer is, it goes back to how I talked about intuitive eating is every single one of us is unique and our bodies are unique and our our minds are unique. And we were raised differently in different environments and have different, you know, voices in our head of all these different things. So can it be done in a healthy way? Yes, I believe it can. I believe that you can be at a place in your life where you can weigh yourself and you can, you know, look at your food and, and track your food in a way that feels good to you but i will challenge our listeners here that is it healthy you know and and really that's where it comes down to i remember brooke and i did this episode about fitness trackers and wearing an apple watch or a fitbit which both and i both brooke and i have worn and i think she actually still wears hers and we just put a challenge out there to our people saying hey yeah you can do this in a healthy way but are you doing it in a healthy way can you be um a little bit more objective and and step back and be like am I letting it control my decisions? And that's where it becomes, is this healthy? Is, am I letting my weight in the morning dictate what my mood is, how I show up to my family, how I show up to lunch and dinner and breakfast and snacks? Is this controlling how I eat today? If it is, then I I would challenge you to think that maybe this isn't actually a healthy way for you to be living your life. And to say, What's dictating what you're choosing to do with your body? Is it your body's cues? Is it the need for nourishment? <laughs> are you actually listening to how hungry or how full you are? What foods would actually taste good versus what foods you've deemed good or bad? And so yes, absolutely. I think there's a way for people to fit those t- sorts of things in and look at their food. And there there certainly comes a time where maybe there's you know, a health issue at hand, like Brooke, my uh, co-host, she has celiac disease. So she had to track her food before she knew that to see what food is bothering me. Why am I having all this GI pain? Um, Food is certainly a powerful, powerful tool for us. And I believe in whole food wholeheartedly. Um, And when we look at food, there are certainly times that this food doesn't do well for me, but it does well for my mom. And that's okay to be different, even if it's this like glorified superfood, as people call it. Um, so there are certainly times and, and periods of your life where maybe tracking your food is helpful for you. But I would just challenge people to say... Is this actually promoting a whole body, whole healthy life? Or is this focused on control? Am I trying to control my weight? Am I trying to control, you know, whatever X, Y, or Z, you know, my weight or whatnot? Um, Or am I truly investigating what feels good to me in my body? And how can I do that in a helpful way? So Brooke and I, inside our membership specifically, talk a lot about this food and mood journal. Can we track the foods that we're eating in a gentle way? We're not counting calories or anything, but in a way that, hey, maybe it red flags us to Say, you know, you thought you woke up and enjoyed a bowl of oatmeal and that that helped sustain you through the day, but actually you're starving by 10 a.m. every single day and you don't have time for a break. So maybe there's something else we can add into that breakfast, or maybe we can change up our breakfast and see how that makes us feel right and so food and mood journals are certainly a really helpful way to do that so yeah i guess that's my answer there that i believe that health can be found in so many different ways and it's so unique and individualized to you that absolutely it's out there but there is a challenge behind that of saying is this truly a healthy thing for my mental health for my physical health for my emotional health my you know relational health is it actually promoting goodness in my life Or is it taking away from that?
1: And because it does rely so heavily on the individual, we have to figure that out for ourselves. Like all of us have to figure out, is this a strategy that works well for us? I know for me personally, counting calories is not the way to go. Like I would take it to the extreme. I would do it in a perfectionist mindset Mm -hmm. and it would not be healthy. It's all about control. You said that word control. I'm like, yes, it's all about control. Mm -hmm. The only time that I had to in the last couple of years was when our second son Micah had a dairy, egg, and peanut allergy. So I had to track my mm. food very, very closely for a long mm-hmm. time. And I remember I was just miserable because I was counting everything. I was looking at every label. I, was, it, I just took it to the extreme because I had to for that very, very short season. But afterwards, I'm like, I'm so glad that I don't have to go back to that because the mental capacity and the mental strength it took, mm. it was far too much. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break to bring up our podcast sponsor for this week, which is Gooder Sunglasses. Gooder has been such a fun brand to work with. And last month, we were introduced to something a little bit different. So, Amy and I both have been rocking our modern day snake oil. And you might be saying, wait, I don't see these on the sunglass listing. Like which ones are these? Are they the OGs? Are they for bigger melons? I'm not seeing these because they are blue blockers. I had no idea that Gooder made blue blockers, but they've been so nice. I don't get a headache anymore when I'm staring at my computer screen all day. Or under the fluorescent lights. They are so cute. They're all so functional and so fashionable. Every one of the Gooder pair of sunglasses is anywhere between $25 and $35, but Herself listeners get 15% off. So if you go to Gooder.com backslash Herself, all of our listeners can get 15% off their entire order. Again, that's Gooder, G-O-O-D-R.com backslash Herself for 15% off. So we've also heard people referencing the weight gain that happened during COVID. And I know Amy's therapist, she made reference to that a lot of her clients are going through that. And for those who are heavier than their long-standing normal, do you have any suggestions? Maybe they're trying to go on a weight loss journey. What are some ways that they can do that, but do it in a healthy way?
0: Mm, I love this question. I, I do want to back up to the beginning of where we're talking about this weight gain during COVID and talk a little bit about that first for anyone that's listening, who's going through that. Um, I see you. I'm I'm there too, honestly. I've gained weight, I'm sure. I ha- I honestly have not stepped on a scale, but I'm sure I have. And I just want to reiterate that our bodies are supposed to change. Um, it is normal. And we have hormonal changes throughout the cycle, especially as, us as women throughout the month, um, but also throughout the years and through our generations and, and um, decades of our life. So that is normal. And I just want to remind us that we are living in a pandemic, an actual pandemic that is threatening our way of life and our actual life. So it is normal and biological that our bodies would pack on weight. That is how we have survived generations of time, especially living in these hard times. So I just want to kind of pull us out of that and thinking that, oh, this is my, I should be, have more control or I should have more, you know, whatever. But there was actually a period of time. If we remember back to the beginning of the pandemic where we went to the grocery stores and they were cleared out and that, that in us instinctually, whether we know it or not, that like the supply chains are running, it's going to be okay. Our bodies perceive that as unbelievable, unbelievable, and fear and anxiety and this weight loss or this weight gain is actually something that our bodies have done for us not against us. And so I just want to reiterate that to our listeners, because I think it's it's so pivotal, especially as we're kind of coming hopefully out of the pandemic, we're going to start to see a lot of um, messaging towards lose that COVID weight, right? And focusing on that. And just a reminder, and I'm sure your therapist has ta- taught you this as well as mine has taught me in the past of even my anxiety, which I hate or whatever it is that I'm dealing with, served a purpose in my life. And it got me through a lot of really hard times. And that's how we should be looking at any weight gain we've experienced during COVID too, is that this is an actual experience that we have all witnessed together that our bodies had to carry us through. And sometimes that did result in weight gain and, and that's okay. And uh, Brooke and I break this down even further inside our membership, because it's it's a really hard one for people to understand that again, weight does not equal health, even though we have been taught that for so long, people can be healthy At any size, and they can start to lean into those healthy behaviors at any size and kind of let the weight do what it will. So to kind of answer your second part of this question, how to be healthy if you're going to pursue a weight loss journey. So going back to what I said before, the number one predictor of weight gain is going on a diet. So what do we do instead? Okay, I understand you. Maybe you're with me. Maybe you believe me. Maybe you don't. That's fine too. And you're like, okay, but what do I do? Because I, I don't feel good in my body. I, I want something to change. And a lot of us want the external appearance of our body to change. What I would challenge you to go on is a peaceful health journey, finding this intuitive eating. And instead of putting weight on the forefront and focusing on that and saying, how can I control my intake? How can I control how I move my body so that my weight changes. Instead of asking ourselves that question, what if we asked ourselves, how can I nourish myself today? How can I find body respect? How can I respect my body? Because if we truly respected our body in the state that it is today, right now, I'm not saying you have to jump up and down and love your body right now, but how can we show it basic respect? A lot of us here listening, are moms, right? We feed our kids because we love them because we want them to be healthy let's feed ourselves. Let's nourish ourselves. Let's find foods that are warming and healthy to our souls, (laughs) to our minds, to our actual physical bodies and move towards that as a health goal of how we're feeling internally based, not less based on really what our body looks like. And so uh, Brooke and I talk about this all the time is moving the weight to the back burner. And that can feel So terrifying for a lot of people and and I'm right there with you. I've spent years of my life trying to lose weight. But in reality, what actually happens when we move weight to the back burner is we allow our bodies space and time to exist and to be nourished and to feel good and to communicate with us what feels good and what doesn't in a real, real way, not just like, oh yeah, these cupcakes taste great. You know, I, I feel good, <laughs> but like, yeah, maybe they do feed our soul for a minute, but how do we feel afterwards? Let's, let's really tune in to how that really affects us. Maybe next time can we pair that cupcake that is so delicious and feeds our soul with something that feeds our body, um, as well. And, and how can we move towards that? So really putting weight loss on the back burner, letting our body do what it will. And you know it's really amazing when we give our our body that freedom and that space to just be and that respect and dignity. When we start treating it with respect and with dignity, we start to nourish it better. And we start to really respect it in a way that shows with the way that we move our body, the way that we stretch, the way that we go to sleep earlier to get more sleep, because these are basic care functions that we need to do for a body that we respect. And once we start to do that, the weight typically takes care of itself. Now, maybe it's not the weight in our head or the weight that my fitness pal told us we wanted to be. It's the weight that our body does best at, that it performs best at, that it feels best at, and that it's going to thrive at. And unfortunately, that set point weight is a range and it's not something that I recommend trying to control. Um, One of our podcast guests who had just the best conversation ever with us explained it like this, that when we're trying to control our weight, it's like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. The more pressure we put on it, the more energy that we expend on it, the higher up it's going to explode <laughs> the other direction when we inevitably let go. Cause it's not sustainable to hold a beach ball underwater for 50 years. So we, we don't want to be holding onto it so tight. At the same time, we want to be treating our body with respect and, and the weight will take care of itself. Um, I truly, truly believe that.
1: Your analogies are spot on. I'm just loving every <laughs> single one of these. Oh, I'm so glad. And this is such a gentle reminder to everyone listening that your body, it deserves respect. It deserves so much respect, whatever season you're in, whatever your body looks like, what it feels like, like give it that respect, give it that love, because that's exactly what it deserves. And during this, Alyssa, and during the last couple of years here, I know that intermittent fasting has become really popular. And you mentioned this at the beginning, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Oh, yes.
0: Such a good one to talk about because this was actually like the last like quote unquote diet, like name diet I really experienced or um, experimented with because I didn't think it was a diet. I was like, oh, this is fine. Like this is just kind of, you know, it makes sense. Like With our bodies, we should have times where we're not eating and times where we are eating. And I experimented with it. Even you would have asked me in the moment, are you an intuitive eater? And I'd have been like, oh, yeah, I am, while I'm doing intermittent fasting. And um, it's hard for us to kind of understand. But really the best way that I like to explain it, and this is questions that we get from our members who are about to join our membership. And I love when they ask this question. They're like, before I join is this a diet? And I'm always like, you're in, you're in. That's the question you need to be asking everything around you before you join. I just love that they do that. But that's really the question we need to identify is, is this a diet? Is this outsourcing? Right. That's my favorite way to explain it. Are we outsourcing our health to someone else or something else? And intermittent fasting is outsourcing our needs to a clock. We're saying, hey, it's not 10. It's Yes, it's 9.52, but it's not 10. I need to wait eight more minutes. And it's wild to me because that's the outsourcing that we're doing, that we've been trained to do as women, especially in our culture. We've been trained that we can't take care of ourselves. We, We can't have everything we need in our own body. We need to look to someone else to teach us or to tell us or to allow us to eat and to nourish ourselves. And intermittent fasting is one where we are essentially outsourcing our own needs to a clock or to someone else who told us how many hours we should or shouldn't be eating for. And It sounds really like intuitive because, of course, there are times as an intuitive eater, there are cycles that we go through where we are eating and cycles that we go through where we're not eating, typically when we're sleeping or in between meals when we're full. So that part of it is really natural and really normal for our body cycles. And people took that and they decided, hey, we can market this. We can take this and sell something out of what our bodies already naturally do. So I would encourage people who are experimenting with intermittent fasting or have looked into it to really ask yourself, is this outsourcing my health to someone else? And why? Why do I need to wait eight more minutes? If I'm hungry now, I'm hungry now. And waiting is just going to make me hungrier. And the hungrier we are on that hunger fullness scale, the further we bounce the other way and overeat, right? I I think most
2: of us have experienced that in the past as well. Yeah. The, the diet industry is wild because I've even heard the term intuitive fasting being mm-hmm. used recently. So they're always, you know, ever changing. Yeah. I wanted to shift gears a little bit because something that I've become really passionate about and looked further into is body image. I just wanted to understand it at a deeper level. And the way that our mothers talked about and treated their body or the way that they commented on other people's bodies can leave a long-lasting impression on us, especially females. Now that a lot of our listeners have kiddos of their own, they, they might be trying to break a cycle here. Can you talk about the parents' influence on body image and what we can do to help our children? Absolutely. You know, honestly,
0: um, one of the first things we ask our members and in our podcast for people to do is, is go back to where their first experience of dieting or this mentality kind of came from. And nine times out of 10, it's from their mom. And listen, if nothing else, I am an advocate for moms doing the best that they freaking can in a world that's crazy. So there is no blaming uh, moms here. But the reality is, is that our moms didn't know any better. And a lot of times they you know, took us to our very first weight watchers uh, meeting. Maybe we participated, maybe we sat on the outskirts watching all these women get on a scale, strip down, and get on a scale and and those experiences stick with us. And I think what's really important is for parents is to not put our life on hold because our body image is uh, suffering. So getting in the picture, right? talking about your body in a positive way, getting in the bathing suit, going on the vacation, not letting um, our body or what our body looks like hold us back in life? Because do we want that for our kids? Do we want our kids to sit on the sidelines of life waiting for their body to be better? Because the truth of the matter is body image is so complex. And I have yet to meet someone who truly lost weight and then felt like their body image had healed itself. I have yet to meet someone that when you really, truly sit down with them, they were like, oh yeah, everything was fixed, right? And and we see this because we see actors and actresses and people talking that we all think have these perfect bodies about how miserable they feel in their body and how uncomfortable they are in their body. And you're like, I would kill to have your body where we look at pictures of ourselves back in the day when we had bad body image and we hated our bodies. But now 10 years later, we look at that picture and go, oh my gosh, I would kill to be that size again. And that's body image. That's not actual weight. (laughs) That's not you know the actualities of that. That is how we've experienced and how we've been taught to look at ourselves and look at others. And I think the best thing we can do as parents is model that behavior, even when it feels Uh, rough on the edges. It doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to be a perfect intuitive eater, by the way, there's no such thing, but you don't have to have perfect body image in front of your child. But having open dialogue and conversations, I think so many times this conversation is put to the side or there's a lot of shame wrapped up in it or guilt. Sometimes it's our mom telling us that our body needs to change. Or sometimes our mom even says something simple that doesn't seem harmful. But when we say, oh, we're fat or we're ugly and you know our mom say no 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 you're not fat you're beautiful saying that a fat person couldn't be beautiful you know and and it's the the thought that needs to go a little bit deeper here of how do we want to uplift our children do we want it to be about their body or do we want it to be about who they are as a person and the value they bring to the world and i think far and above when my mom, my mom was excellent at this. um, When my mom would compliment me as a person, you know, you're so genuine, you're so real, you're so, you know, generous or whatever, those kind of compliments go way farther than uh, you're beautiful or your body looks nice or whatever that might look like. And I, th- I think we all feel that too, right? When we're in a group of friends and someone comes up to you and says, oh, you look so beautiful today. You're like, oh, thank you. And it feels good for a second. But how does it feel when someone walks up to you and, you know, holds your elbow or puts their hand on you and says, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Are you okay? I've been thinking about you. You know, that it's instantly a deeper connection. So I think really modeling that for our children, tuning into who they are as a person, what values they have, um, what additions they have to this world is, so powerful. And also speaking kindly of our body in front of our kids and working on it, you know, just showing that you're working on your body image, that you're working on your relationship to food can go a really far way in our children's journey as well.
1: All of those thoughts. And if you're having a hard time picking all of them and being like, I need to implement every one of these into my (laughs) life, Uh just choose one, like just focus in on one and get that down really concrete and then move on to the next one. There are so many good nuggets right there. Mm -hmm. And, And we're all trying to do our best. Like we're trying to do our best to help our children eat healthy, making sure that they create these healthy habits. But anyone who has kids knows that we're going to run into some roadblocks. And one big one can be picky eaters. So you speak so well on this, Alyssa. Can you give some of your best tips for mamas that are dealing with picky toddlers?
0: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think especially a culmination of this conversation is we can do and say all the right things at the table. But if we're not modeling the behavior, it's not going to go very far with our kids. So back to having this healthy relationship with food, all foods fit and truly living that yourself um, is going to be really helpful for our kids. So beyond that, okay, we've got a pick eater at the table, like, what do I actually do? Modeling is great, Alyssa, but like, give me tips, right? The biggest thing that you can implement in your home Is sticking to your roles at the table. And what I mean by that is following what's called the division of responsibility. It's a a term coined by another registered dietitian. And she was all about your roles at the table. And really what, how we see this happen at the table is if we start to cross roles, we start to take control of something that should be our children's job. That's where pressure happens and pressure leads to picky eating. So what are our roles at the table? The parent is in charge of what comes into the home, what foods are served, when they're served, and where. So those are the big picture, the overarching things we're in charge of. Let's put a balanced plate on the table every two to three hours. Let's all eat at the table together as a family. Those are the things we're in control of. Our child's role at the table is if they're gonna eat the food that you gave them, and if they are gonna eat it, how much are they gonna eat? And if we stick to those roles, picky eating tends to like, dissipate a lot, (laughs) but it can feel really scary for parents to come to the table and watch their kids never touch a vegetable or never pick up the food that's presented. And when we get that fear, we start to cross over into the territory and say, okay, you just have to eat three more bites, then you can go play because we're afraid. We want what's best for our kids. We know vegetables are healthy for them. We want them to grow and develop. And so we start to reach over and say, I know that you should be in charge of how much you're going to eat, but I'm going to tell you you just need two or three bites and it starts off really slow, but these pressures start to snowball and now we're begging, now we're bribing, now we're encouraging, now we're counting, now we're demanding, now we're, you know, ending the meal out of rage because our kid won't eat their green beans. And really what it comes back down to is following our roles at the table, having very little to no pressure. Present at the table and exposing them over and over again. Now, of course, this is far more nuanced than I can get into in this podcast, which is why I have my podcast, Nutrition for Littles, on my Instagram page, because a lot of us are probably sitting like, okay, that's great, but what if they don't eat anything? And there's a lot of tactics we can take that encourage them without using pressure, um, because in the research, it does show that the more pressure we put on our kids, not only does it make them more picky as children, but also it shows in the research later in life that they're not going to be eating those foods anyway. And that's what we want, right? It's not just about broccoli today, it's broccoli for life.
2: Yeah. And it's really interesting to watch the kiddos too, because they know when they're full. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to allow them to have that and listen to their body is what now we're all trying to do again. So, like, (laughs) helping them not to lose that, like, nope, I'm full, I'm good, is important. And you mentioned your Instagram. I love following you. So if you're not already following her, she's at me underscore RD. And that's where this next example comes from. So she had a post and it said, when your child says, can you get me more pasta? If you say, of course, I'll grab it right now. They learn mom will take care of every desire instantly, regardless of her needs or wants. I'm going to do this one day too. Instead, if you can say, of course, let me take a couple more bites and then I'll grab it. They learn my mom has needs and wants that are important. It's a balance of when I'm a parent, my needs will matter too. Okay. I love this example because To be very transparent, I'm, I'm so guilty of this. Like when the boys want more food, I jump up and I get it right away. And as your caption stated, moms can start to feel like pinballs. They're bouncing around trying to meet everyone else's needs. So Alyssa, how do we start to break ourselves out of this habit?
0: Oh, my goodness, Amy, you're not alone. I'm the exact same way. And this is actually a a behavior I saw myself getting into, which is why I got into this whole thing is I started to see my son go down this picky eating spiral. And I myself started to use these common tactics. And I was like, okay, there's got to be a different way that will actually make things better. And I started seeing this in myself. And what you learn is kind of what we talked about before is we're looking to our parents of how we're going to be treated and what kind of um, environment we're going to set up for ourselves as adults. And that's one of them, right? If we see our mom constantly being a pinball back and forth between the kitchen, we're going to expect to do that as well when we're a parent. And we teach our kids simultaneously not only that that's going to happen to them one day, but also that they have a lot of power of what mom does with her time and body and whatever because we're hungry. And we start to – they start to really – I honestly, we start to show our cards to them when they're like, Oh, I want another piece of broccoli. We're like, You want broccoli? Oh my gosh, I'll get it right now. Right. Like, we, because it's coming from that fear of they're never eating vegetables. Now they're asking for vegetables. I better get up and get it right now. And we kind of show our hands like, Hey, I want you to eat vegetables. Right. And, and I'm going to do anything I can in my power at any second, drop of the hat, whatever, to get you to eat vegetables. And they go, Hmm. I can use this, right? And it's not on purpose. You know, I think a lot of parents, when I talk about kids having these behaviors, are like, my kid's not manipulative. I don't think any kids are manipulative. I think kids are constantly learning if, when scenarios. If I do this, what happens? And that is how they experience the world. And if we're telling them, if you want more broccoli, mom's going to stop everything she's doing and get you more they learn that, right? And that's their behavior to learn. So I think the best thing that we can do to start breaking ourselves of this habit is to realize that this isn't going to go away tomorrow. Um, If we've set up this environment, which I certainly have in your home, it's going to take time. And depending on your child's age too, of how long they can be expected to wait. I'm not telling you to make your 15 month old wait 20 minutes while you finish your hot meal and then go get them more. It's more of like, let mommy take one more bite. Maybe they start off waiting. 15 to 30 seconds for you to go fill their plate back up. And they can certainly do that. And then we start to add more time. And then, like I said, it's a balance. It's a dance back and forth between your needs and their needs. It doesn't mean that your needs come first and foremost. It means that, hey, we both have needs at the same time and they're both going to be met. So it really starts really, really slow and just taking a beat before we fill their plate or whatever the demand
1: is in that moment. We both have needs at the same time and they're both going to be met. I should like tattoo that on my forehead and just <laughs> right? to remind myself of that. Yeah. So true though. So true. And every part of this conversation, that balance or that living in the gray has been part of it. So just such a good mm-hmm. reminder for people trying to go one way or the other, that there can be that balance in the middle. So to close out our conversation today, one of the things we wanted to talk about was word choices around food. So let's use the example of sugar, for instance, making sure not to demonize it because that can really have a long lasting impact on our children. So what are some soft words that we can use around sweets, especially when we're trying to set a limit?
0: Yeah, great question. So it really depends on your little one's age. Um, I talk a lot to toddler moms, and really just knowing that our toddlers aren't able to live in the gray yet. They're black and white, they're this or that, and they tend to hold on to things really tightly, especially the ones we don't want them to hold on to, right? And so um, I think it's just a reminder here that we don't want to put kind of these negative connotations about sugar out there. Like you said, we don't want to demonize it. So we don't want to call it good or bad. And what we do is instead of using soft wording, honestly, we show by action where we get to decide how often sugar or added sugar or sweets are served in our home. And if we want to limit those, they're just less prevalent in our home. And that's okay. Um, When they do start asking questions as they get older and older, we can absolutely explain more and more of the nuance as they get older. And we can explain that desserts taste great, right? Oh, mommy loves chocolate cake. And we experience it when we want to, you know, have chocolate cake in the home. And we experience it in a way that feels less about the food and more about the company. And I always kind of say this where it's like, when we're going to enjoy food, we love enjoying it socially, right? With other people. So let's focus more on the experience with our children and building that connection than we do necessarily about the food itself. So in an experience that I've had recently, my son had a, um, it's essentially a milkshake from Starbucks and we went on a car trip and he got car sick. And we all know that if all we have in our belly is sugar and we go on a long car trip and we tend to get car sick, we're probably going to throw up. So I was very gentle with him and explaining to him, using myself as an example, there's no shame, no guilt, no judgment on him. And I certainly didn't talk about it in the moment. But the next time he was asking for this drink from Starbucks, I explained to him, hey, do you remember last time we got this drink? And sometimes with mommy, when I drink something like this, it can make my belly feel kind of sick, especially if I don't have anything else with it. What if we had this instead? Or what if we had this with this? And kind of start to put words to something that we know we experience and take any shame or guilt off of it from them. Because of course they want the delicious drink that tastes delicious, but we kind of see where that's going, right? So I always love to explain it in a way that's using me as the example um, so he can learn from that.
2: Alissa, mm. Alyssa, this has been such a pleasure. I'm such a huge fan of you. You are a wealth of knowledge. Thank you for coming on our podcast and please let every person listening know where they can find more of you.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, like we said at the top, I do have two podcasts. One is called Nutrition for Littles. The other one is called Diet Riders. Although I will say, likely by the time this is coming out, um, we're shifting our name. Um, really, our message is staying the same, but we realized we were talking to moms anyway. So, we might as well make it official in the title. And we're shifting to the name The Mama Well. Um, it's a place where you can come fill up your cup and take care of your kids while also meeting your needs, too. So, The Mama Well will be our new podcast and our Instagram handle as well. So, you can find me there. And actually, same thing with Nutrition for Littles is my podcast. And um, like Amy said earlier, my Instagram name is currently uh, Mama Meardee, but that is actually shifting to Nutrition for Littles as well. So uh, those match with my podcast. So you can find me at Nutrition for Littles on Instagram and The Mama Well.
1: Well, thank you again so much. And all these pieces that we brought up today, just take them in bite-sized amounts and no pun intended whatsoever, (laughs) since we're talking about nutrition here, but there's so much good information. I know that trying to take it all in at once, it can sometimes feel like it's just too much on our plates. So thank you again. And please check out those resources. If any of these have hit home for you.